Hey there, podcast fans. This is the son of your favorite podcast host, Barbara Bray. Hello, Mom. Hi, Andrew. <laughs> I just love this. <laughs> so you're bubbling right now, because, and I'm assuming it has to do with the conversation that everybody's about to hear. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what we're about to be listening to? I've known Dr. Walter Grayson for many years, and... I, you know, we just talked and I said, we got to do a podcast. He goes, of course, of course we do. I learned so much about him that I didn't know. And I'm just going to put out a, a little teaser before the we actually get into the podcast. Think Wakanda, Black Panther. Walter had a lot to do with that. So listen to the podcast. <laughs> Oh, I like sneaky version of you. Well, everybody, everybody, this is going to be an amazing ride. Uh, you're going to be uh, wonderfully surprised about where this conversation goes. So stay tuned to listen to Barbara Bray and Dr. Walter Grayson. I am so excited to have this amazing person who I've known for so long, and I've been wanting him on my show. It's Walter Grayson. I'm so happy you're here. Great to see you. I know. We, we're doing a Zoom so we can see each other, but we're going to capture the audio. But boy, his, your smile, you just make me smile. <laughs> <laughs> I want to just share a little bit about you with my audience. Is that okay? Please. Okay. I'm going to say the whole thing. Because I just oh love goodness. it. <laughs> Dr. Walter Greeson is a professor of history, chairing the Department of History at, oh, I have to make sure I say it right, McAllister College in St. Paul, Minnesota. Did I do it right? McAllister. McAllister. I even said it wrong in Twitter. I wrote it wrong. Anyway. <laughs> it's all, all right. good. <laughs> I'm learning. So Dr. Greeson's research I just love all this stuff. I just think it's so cool. You've defined new areas of inquiry in history, education, urban planning, and economics. And he's most known for his work on the concept of Wakanda as it appeared in Marvel Studios' Black Panther. Did you know that, my audience? It's so amazing. <laughs> I just watched Black Panther just a few days ago, again and oh. again. <laughs> anyway, we'll talk more about that. You use this technology to transform schools and communities around the world. And we're going to talk about that, too. Is that right? Yes, indeed. Oh, welcome, Walter. This is just amazing. Your story is amazing. So honored to be here with you. Oh, thank you. This is so an honor for me, I have to tell you. So I always like everyone to kind of do a background and overview of just you, where you grew up and things like that. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I'm just so thrilled to be here and the communities that we're part of online bring me joy every day. So it, it's just an amazing pleasure to be here. The background story um, is, is just a strange thing. Um, I, I grew up on a, in a very small farming community in New Jersey, or a remnant of the state's um, 19th century name, the Garden State. <laughs> and so um, I would get up in the morning, four or five o'clock before the sun was up and help my family pull weeds or plant seeds or help go push a plow through through the soil. 
And so it's very, very rural upbringing. And people who I met over my life are always like, like in Newark. And I'm like, no, no, this was not Newark, New Jersey. <laughs> where where so was it? Little, little town. Uh, it's called Freehold. It's midway between Princeton and Asbury Park, kind of okay. in the northern part of the Pine Barrens. And so very rural, very poor part of the state when I grew up. And um, really, everybody I knew were either farm workers or children of farm workers. And the uh. black community was extraordinary. Just it was the church. It was school. And you focused on being amazing in both. And so um, my initial experience in education was coming up through Sunday school and actually being told to teach little elementary schoolers when I was still like 12 years old. And so it was my first responsibility to deliver a lesson plan to craft a sense of unit and how students would come back week after week. And my family's a family of educators, um, folks who had really desegregated education in, in New Jersey. And I've done a lot of civil rights work through the 40s, 50s and 60s. And so that sent me off to college. I went to Villanova University for my undergrad and my um, doctoral work was at Temple University. So I was in Philadelphia for both. And then um, my first tenure track job was at Ursinus College outside of Philly. I got tenure there in 2010. And the heart of my research was about how did suburbs creep out and kind of redesign these rural communities? So most urban scholars look at downtowns, look at the core of the city, and then see the suburbs out on the horizon and see the challenge of balancing city life with suburban life. Uh, my work really flipped that equation and said, well, there are farming communities out on those fringes mm -hmm. that are, are being transformed by the way the suburbs expand. And so it, it's contributed to the way a lot of folks study metropolitan areas. We can't just see cities. We can't just see suburbs. Mm -hmm. We can't just see rural. We have to look at all of them together. And so I was, I was glad to contribute to that transformation over the last decade or so. But really, in the last 10 years, a lot of my stuff has been on economic history and then really educational impacts. A lot of my work in the last four or five years was understanding the economic value of school systems and being very explicit about how important. We, we, we don't have any comparable institution in the world today that basically sustains the way economic growth happens, the way that schools do. And we don't explain that to teachers. We certainly don't explain it to principals. And then even generally, superintendents and school boards only have a basic grasp of it. So that's been a lot of my work is getting people to realize just in straight economic terms, beyond the social and cultural language, how important schools are to the success mm -hmm. of a community, a state, or a nation. And so that, that work has carried me into a lot of new directions, especially with technology building things with VR and augmented reality and using gaming systems to help people get a more extraordinary educational experience. I love that you're doing this work and you have several books around some of the work that you've been doing based on your dissertations and some of the other things, the research you've done. What's interesting is because I've worked in rural areas, like you said, I worked in West Virginia. I've worked, I grew up in Maryland. I think I mm -hmm. told you that, but it's interesting when most of the textbooks are based on the cities in what is yeah. it, New York, Florida, and Texas, and California, or whatever. It's like the big That's cities. It. And so a lot of people are left out. Yes, indeed. That's the story we really need to grapple with. And it's not just within the United States, it's even around the world that the places we choose to highlight and discuss 
skew the kind of understanding of how do we create better systems, mm-hmm. better, better forms of government, better businesses for everyone. And so that's that's the great challenge of my life is that I don't do the normal work that a, a scholar or an educator does. I try to see the things that are missing and find ways to build them and not just build them for you know my career, but encourage other people to find those same kinds of areas and expand what they can offer so that there are fewer voids. And, and you know, it's impossible for any one of us mm-hmm. to do all the work of completing the picture. But if we all do our part, it becomes a little bit easier. Well, I started, you know, as a teacher, but I also focused on ed, ed tech. And this is long before there was all this fancy stuff, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I was always interested in, in how do you engage people into motivating them to want to learn, to empower them. And a lot of it is, it's very difficult for some of these kids that don't have the resources. They don't have people that are teaching them that understand who they are or the culture. There's so many things around education that do impact the communities and the, you know, you said the economy and the economics in that area. I just, boy, I sure would love to spend more time with you than on this myself because <laughs> it's I've been trying for so long trying to transform a system that is so embedded in the status quo it's hard to change things especially in some areas so I just I hope a lot of people read your books <laughs> <laughs> and follow you and one of them's free engine of creation is free you can get it <gasps> online so if you want to just go get a free copy of Engine of Creation, that's a great first step. It's a collection of essays, but it connects to all the work I've done. And I agree with you. The points about how technology works, mm-hmm. the, the traditional students who love writing papers, who love doing lab reports, who, who do really well with traditional math instruction, they're going to do well. The great breakthrough for me is using technology, using games in ways that students who have not excelled and often get frustrated being told that they fail in class, Those are my students that are my favorites because I have tools that can help them break through and say, I'm smart too. I can do some things that people didn't think I could do. And that's, that's been the hallmark of my career. Yeah. I love games and I, I can't, we're going to talk about that, but we're going to talk about some, unless you want to talk about that first. I mean, there's so much about. Oh, go for it. We got a plan. Let's stick to the plan. (laughs) Okay. Stick to the plan. Cause I mean, I'm just, it's hard for me to stick to a plan, Walter, you know, (laughs) I'm like squirrel, you know, like I, I get diverted really easily, (laughs) but um, so many good things to do. Oh, but there's so much. And I just appreciate that. But when I found out about your Wakanda syllabus and I realized your part in Black Panther, the movie Black Panther, which I just love, I just love it. Um, Give us a background about that, because that's a amazing. Yeah. So if you sit all the way through the end of that lengthy credit scene (laughs) where they go through and talk about all the people that contributed, there are two guys on there, uh, Christopher Priest and Reginald Hudland, that I had hundreds of hours of conversations with between like 1999 and 2007, 2008, almost a decade of dreaming that one day there might be a Black Panther movie. (laughs) And so... um, Christopher Priest in particular, I had always been skeptical of the Black Panther as a character. As I grew up reading comics, um, they didn't feature him very well. He was always in the background. He was always someone who was um, 
kind of in danger and needed to be rescued by stronger heroes. And so um, just not a not a compelling story for a young reader. And so um, Priest changed that. Um, he had been writing comics that I had loved before I even knew his name. And so when Priest took over that character, he immediately made it much more serious. Mm. He's like, this is a monarch. This person controls armies. They have vast wealth and resources beyond anything else in the world. Um, this is not some character to be kind of thrown aside and, and treated lightly. And so he wrote these stories that were just extraordinary. And so I remember reading the, the first narrative arc is called The Client. And he just was clever and funny and thoughtful and um, brought so much of this sense of the African diaspora and the contradictions within American society to the front of his work. So um, this is before the internet had uh, streaming or video. (laughs) And so we we would talk through emails and on platforms and through his website and and debate a lot of the choices he would make narratively. I think the greatest honor I got early on was maybe start of the second year, started started this like after issue 12, there was a story arc that I still love to this day about the economic takeover of Wakanda. And (laughs) because of the kinds of conversations we had, they literally took the company that represented all of Wakanda's technological wealth and they gave it the initials WDG, Wakanda Design Group. And then they showed the stock value decreasing all in one issue. And so like every page had like three sets of my initials on it all through the entire comic. And I just, I will never get tired of, of reading that particular story. Don't they mean? But I continue to read and correspond yeah. with them. And, wow. you know, I, I think probably two years later, I taught the Black Panther comic in class for the first time. Marvel published a notice about the class, about the college class teaching the subject. So I want to say that's like 2003 or four. And that's uh, roughly a year before Reginald Hudlin took over. And he reinvented the character, reinvented the stories. And I started talking with him about what he wanted to do with it. And we actually compiled a resource on Hudlin's website. It was like an encyclopedia for what, what is Wakanda. And so we spent probably three years back and forth in conversation about possible stories, different cultural features, the geography, the actual physical placement of the country. And what I noticed was, as other writers came on board, they were using our online encyclopedia to then shape new stories. And so it was just, it was wonderful to see it happen. But um, when it got to like 2007 and we heard Iron Man movie was coming, we're like, oh, one day there is going to be a Black Panther movie. It might not be five, 10, 20 years, but all this stuff, we've got to start thinking, okay, how do we put together the kind of story we want to see? And so um, Mm. that conversation went, you know, 2008, 2009. And then um, the real breakthrough was in 2016 when Captain America Civil War came out and they showed the Black Panther as a character on the, for the first time on film. And all of us who had been in those conversations flipped out. We're like, oh, yeah, they're about to do this. They're going to make a Black Panther film because everybody is going to flip out when they see this movie. And so that's when I published the introduction to the Wakanda syllabus. And um, what I did was just compile all the kinds of writers and artists and theorists who had talked about um, what had before that point been called Black science fiction. 
science fiction about people of the African diaspora. And so when that started to gain momentum and, and a lot of people got very excited about the Wakanda syllabus um, and they announced the movie was coming out within a year, probably two. Um, then we began to get in touch with a more popularized phrase that's become known as Afrofuturism. And so Afrofuturism has just taken over my work. I, I thought it was something that it was like a hobby, something I was having fun with on the side. But now it's become the most popular topic. I just taught another course on it, just wrapped up last week. Um, Afrofuturism basically looks at traditional science fiction and fantasy and asks the question, why are there so few people of African descent in these stories? Like, why is there universally this sense that there's only one, if any, person of African descent in any mm -hmm. science fiction story? Where are the futures for Black people? And so that, that's been an amazing conversation with just brilliant people, John Jennings, Yatasha Womack, Ronaldo Anderson, just geniuses. Carnegie Hall is hosting all of our work this Whoa. coming spring. Whoa. And so there are going to be concerts and new books and movies. Um, I see HBO has, has done a great job putting together stories. What is it? The uh, Lovecraft Country series, mm -hmm. the Watchmen series are all derivatives of Afrofuturism. And we've only barely scratched the surface for this next generation. It's not just the story of T'Challa and, and the Black Panther that's going to continue to inspire people. It's just our way of broadening everyone's imagination. And so that's that's what I love most out of that decade of, you know, just kind of talking with people about ideas. And it really just broke through in a way that I could have never imagined. So I have two questions. Mm -hmm. The Wakanda syllabus, can people read it? Is it oh, available? Yeah. So there's multiple ver versions. The, the introduction is still published by the African-American Intellectual History Society. Um, so um, I can send you that link and, and please mm -hmm. recommend it. But over time, um, it grew <laughs> enormously. Wow. And so um, the book that I published with my colleague Julian Chambliss the year, like the month before the movie came out, has mm -hmm. the fourth cha chapter on how to design a place like Wakanda. Um, that book is called Cities Imagined, and it, it came out in January 2018. And um, it's one of the really first key resources to talk about the specifics of land use and architecture and economic development as they come from an Afrofuturist context. Um, wow. So that's, you know, Cities Imagined is a really good place to go. Expensive book, I'm going to say. Order it for your public library or your community center. I think it costs $100 to get a copy of it. It's, it's, it's a rare, popular book. Wow. But um, that, and then from there, we've had art exhibits. Uh, like I said, the Carnegie Hall series is coming up. We've had series of concerts around the world, um, paying attention to the work of Erica Badu or uh, Janelle Monet. These folks are all doing this. Um, if you look back to the origins, you got to take a look at Outcast or uh, Sun Ra, jazz musician, the orchestra. Mm -hmm. um, this has been generations of work to posit the idea that there was a future that was worthy of exploration for people of African descent. It's very similar to what happened with Carter Woodson and W.E.B. Du Bois and Ida Wells Barnett, where in the early 20th century, they had to make the argument that there was a past related to Africa that was worthy to, of study. And it's still a century of work 
that's un- incomplete. You see the reaction against the 1619 project by, by suggesting yeah. that there's a worthy history beyond just the standard narrative. Afrofuturism is a century away, at least from its fullest potential. But uh, a few of us have been sitting here trying to sow seeds. And, and you know, at the heart of it, Octavia Butler, the work mm-hmm. that she did, particularly for me, the Parable series, but I also love her patternist stories. Wow. Um, I could have never come to where I started with this work in, in the late 90s without what Octavia Butler had done in the 70s and 80s. All of that is put together in a library guide. There's an online library guide where you can look up all of those resources. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get back to the episode. Okay, so let's put a link to some of these resources for people because we're going to make a post. If you just put it into Google, Wakanda syllabus is the first thing. Oh, really? Okay, so I can grab some of those for people because (laughs) I always make a post after because that way, you know, people, it's like show notes, but I always put a lot of resources in there and everything. Make sure. Yes, indeed. I just, I just think how exciting that was for you to see it actually come to fruition. And then now with this Carnegie Hall series, when is that going to happen? Is that going to happen soon or? Yeah, that starts in mid-January. It will run through the end of May. Oh, that's going to be wonderful. Is it going to be on TV or is it going to be oh, a it's streaming? it's on all kinds of different platforms. Yeah, there's, there's going to be all kinds of different broadcasts for it. Oh, my gosh. This is so cool. <laughs> I I mean, the thing is, is that you're right. You were there and you got to do something that you really love and it's growing and growing and you're finding all the... I mean, you, like you said, you're learning from the past and it's helping you. Yeah, no, that was the heartbreaking thing about so much of my historical work. It was about communities that had been destroyed um, yeah. due to violence, due to racism. Mm. And I never I thought I was going to spend the rest of my life just documenting and re- recapturing some of those histories and trying to piece them back together, which I do. But at the same time, to be able to forecast and take those mm. lessons it's it's completely changed the landscape of understanding how do you build just an equitable community that you can actually have functional places that are not built on sexism and racism and exploitation. You can actually build sustainable mm-hmm. community where you're affirming families and children and our seniors. And, you know, the whole frame of possibility changing for me came because there was this massive global affirmation for Afrofuturism. Well, I mean, it sounds like it's, global, like you said. I mean, it would be interesting because some people in the United States don't really look outside the, their own yeah. world or they don't even look outside their own communities a lot of times. And yes, so it's really nice to open the door, bring bring some of this in and show the possibilities. Yeah, the folks in San Francisco, I know, are going through some of these debates right now mm-hmm. and being able to have conversations about the kinds of ways our schools function taking lessons from indigenous history. Yes. That's a huge lesson to learn to speak different languages from different native communities. Mm-hmm. It just changes your entire sense of what you can articulate and how. And to do that with small children, mm. I've already seen the power that, you know, you give young people a, a larger vocabulary, a different palette, a wider palette of colors to paint their worlds with. And they just do things we couldn't even imagine. Well, one of the things I, I did do some work in New Zealand and I had to learn Maori. And what's really interesting, because I did a, um, I was in an online conference 
and everyone was speaking Maori. And I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in the wrong place. (laughs) And, and, but the children are singing in Maori. They all learn Maori because uh, they, they had reconciliation in 1983 and decided this is the culture is so important. I just wish, and I love the idea that if we could all understand the indigenous culture and how beautiful they are and value them. I, I just, that's the battle we have right now in the U.S. and Canada. Like, I think we can win that one. I think we can yeah. get people to adopt indigenous language instruction at very early ages, especially in larger population centers. And it'll mm. just open up so much more for all of us. Oh, gosh. You know, I've been trying to do this for a long time because I did work with some different uh, indigenous groups. Uh, one is the Muckleshoot mm. up in Washington and some other ah. Navajo. And, and um, I just... You know, I, I mean, I'm thinking like you, but I just haven't done a lot of that. And it's just nice to know that there's some possibilities, especially for the future for our children. Yes, indeed. Uh, so you talked about games. You shared with me about Sojourner's Trail. And wow. Can you just share <laughs> a little bit about it with my audience? Because I'm excited about it. Yeah, one of my favorite things. And so way back in the early 90s, I had an amazing educational mentor named Herb Green. He ran the New Jersey Educational Association as the union for all the teachers in the state. And he invited a couple of young students in to kind of learn about pedagogy and then figure out how do you make classrooms more dynamic and he was into these things called simulation games Mm. how do you pretend to be a group of athenian senators debating public policy three thousand years ago uh how do you come into a send uh setting of being um part of the debates around the u.s constitution so they're all these very traditional debates but mostly political um a little bit of philosophical Uh, that were being used and tried out. And so they taught us over about eight weeks how to design simulation games really quickly. And so I think that summer I designed maybe 100. And then um, Mm -hmm. since then, I've probably designed another 200 over the course of my career. But that's, that's the core of my pedagogy, is using game techniques to reinforce class lessons. And um, so much of it, I also learned from being involved in the civil rights movement classrooms, that they also also used experiential technique to kind of get people to summon the courage to stand up when police were attacking them, when people were kind of brutalizing them and trying to do sit-ins. Those were all done, that training was all done through experiential education. And so I combined both simulations and experiential ed to then create new kinds of classroom experiences. And so After I served as a dean back in like 2017, 2018, so much of what I did in terms of pedagogy started to kind of pour out into my university colleagues. I mean, it it had been a part of my work back as early as 2005 or six, but um, using simulations, using classroom experiences to make every class a different lesson, not just content wise, but pedagogically. I often walk into the room and I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to kind of follow the script and stick to the standard and get to the goal. But it's my uncertainty that actually energizes the students. And so they come in and they're able to shape the experience on their own terms and posit questions, make assertions. Um, 
<laughs> so there are sometimes it gets a little wild where folks folks get a little too competitive or too excited and we've got to kind of refocus. But I'd much rather that in the opposite, where there are different degrees of board and they're just trying to get through and watch mm-hmm. the clock until their time passes by. And so all of my classes and, you know, I can't count how many times I've been in the classroom anymore. I think I've taught a little bit over 7,500 students somewhere in that neighborhood. Every day I go in there trying to do something I never did before, even if the content and the goals and the structure are part of a larger system of what's got to be communicated. And the sense of originality, the sense of the uniqueness of the group of us sitting together and doing something new for the first time, that's, that's the secret sauce for me. And so Sojourner's Trail is, is the most profound product of that entire commitment. I spent all those years writing about the Black Panther and, and what Wakanda was. And so I knew the film was coming out because I had published the syllabus online and there was a lot of excitement around the syllabus. And I knew the book was coming, Cities Imagined was coming. And so that spring when the film opened, I basically took all the elements from the book and built out an entire syllabus around if the students could build their own classroom experiences with these tools, what would they create? And so I don't want to go through every step of it, but by the end of the course, every student had created a different gaming experience to share with a classmate and to see how the classmate would negotiate. They, they were mazes that they all created. And every maze that a student created, their class, one of their classmates would try and solve it. But to solve the maze, they would have to answer questions about the course content. And so some of these mazes were extraordinary. I'd say three of them, I I would honestly, if it had been Herb Green I was still working with in the early 90s, I was like, we've got to publish these three mazes. These are these are spectacular. But instead of sending them through a traditional publication process, I reformatted them and kind of standardized them slightly and turned them into an online virtual experience. And so it was a gaming platform where any student could come through and start to learn about the content that my students had discussed. And so uh, the, there were three levels to the game. It was like time traveling. So go back to Philadelphia in 1800, go to Chicago in 1940, go back to Harlem in 1910 community while you're actually engaging in learning about what the readings and, and the articles were all about. And so that proved to be really effective. People loved the games. People loved the settings. It took about a year to reformat the first version of it. Once we did that, uh, we spent another year building out another seven levels. But then ultimately, the last two years has been rendering the environments as uh, virtual reality spaces. So like playing uh, Minecraft or Fortnite, instead of just looking down on a maze and exploring it from kind of a bird's eye view, you can walk through the actual historic environment. So we have one of these that's coming out about New Orleans in the spring. And I have another one that I'm hoping to release in the next month. That's about the communities I studied in New Jersey. And so, yeah, and I just got funding to expand out like 10 more of them. So we're going to be building out virtual historic experiences with literary, mathematical, artistic content for people to use. And and my greatest dream is to partner with education just like you like our network in the PLN and build an infinite number of these virtual environments so that every day students and teachers are just thrilled at the chance to come in and learn together and have that kind of tool. I'm in. (laughs) I tried to build something like this long, long ago with the 
I was working with the Department of Ed in California and in social studies. I it's way before there was ability to do this because I was thinking like you. Yes. I was thinking that we would do time travel. We'd be able to go in and pick up an artifact and it would take us to a place. And then there would be a person we could talk to from that time. And it was kind of like what you're doing, but not sophisticated. It doesn't, not with that. Oh, stop it. No, we could build exactly what you're describing like in the next six months. (laughs) I want to do do it so bad. I I was in, I taught social studies. And so I just saw that it it had, I, I worked with um, kids uh, in four through eight. It was called core values. It was the name of the Uh, grant. Isn't it a great name grant? It was at Oakland and we did it. We created a virtual museum with docents. I mean, I had them walking. This is like in the late (laughs) nineties. Yes, they indeed. thought I was crazy. They all thought, Barbara, let her do it. Just keep her busy, I guess, you know. <laughs> oh. <laughs> visionary, visionary, opening up a future for us. But it's so, you know, it's like if you got these ideas, it's so cool if you actually see them come to fruition like you're doing. And I definitely want to see, I want to experience one of the mazes. I want to walk through so oh they're they're available through my website if you go to uh, walterdgrayson.com uh if you go under projects and then you'll find the sojourner's trail link and you can go and play it well we're going to do that i'm putting the link there so everybody can try it that is so cool so you know i mentioned core values you actually i had written we had talked about your why being your core value do you want to share that at kind of like pull everything together So absolutely. I'm very blessed in my life to have seen firsthand the power of education. I had an older relative that um, dealt with with several disabilities that as a a small child, three or four years old, was thrown out of school because the other children laughed at his disabilities. And he spent his life as as a field hand, you know, never had the chance to learn to read or write. And for me, it was unimaginable that his chance had been kind of squandered, that it had been taken from him. And so in my life, I've been committed to saying it's not just education as a formal tool or, you know, it's not strictly about literacy or numeracy, those kinds of skills. There's a piece about affirming our common humanity that comes yeah. out of why education is so powerful. And so it's not just what we can do with it. It's fact that that we grow as people, as a species, when we commit to strong education. So that, that's my core value. Um, I've seen the damage it does when we deny education um, up close and personal. And mm-hmm. I can't think of anything I oppose more. Well, when you because I've worked in Title I schools and uh, very poor areas, what I saw were families that just loved their children, but they understood that there was the resources were limited. COVID kind of exposed all those inequities. And what was interesting is that the district saw this and made sure that people, the children were fed. They made sure that everyone had Wi-Fi. They made yeah. sure they had the resources, but it, COVID changed a lot of things for everybody. It's going to be a long time before we can fix some of these things. Um, no, but all we can do is what we do tomorrow. You know, we yeah. get up and we do everything we can and we keep keep pushing as hard. 
And I, I do believe that as we move together, mm-hmm. like there's this compound exponential effect. I think we can build back faster than, than we may have lost ground. Well, we just need more like you, Walter. You're so amazing. And you and I our know. whole team. Our whole team. We get everyone together. This is, I mean, I've been, I was looking so forward to talking to you. We had a little trouble finding times to work together. So somehow we did it and we made it work. Yeah. Oh, I hope this isn't the last time. We got a few more things. Uh, well, is there anything else you would like? I, I do want you to share how people can get a hold of you and what is next for you other than I know you're going to be doing the Sojourner's Trail and the games, but is there anything that we left out? Wow. So you know about the Carnegie Hall Afrofuturism series. Mm-hmm. I, I have a, a few books coming out in the next year, so I, I'm not going to jump ahead just yet. But um, I guess most recently, our common friend, uh, Hedrick Nichols, mm-hmm. has a book that uh, she puts out with her Small Bite series on blind spots. I, yes. I would love to get more people to pick that up. Um, for me, for folks struggling with a lot of the equity issues, we have an amazing tool that came out last, this time last year is uh, Zachary Casey's Encyclopedia of Critical Whiteness Studies in Education. Again, a, a pricey resource. You want to order it for a school or for a library. Uh-huh. But um, the Encyclopedia of Critical Whiteness Studies in Education, just it's again a compendium of resources on how to bring people together how to teach from an informed place where we affirm each other's value and humanity and don't fall into a lot of the poisonous rhetoric of division. Can, is it possible you can help me put all the links? <laughs> you, said yes, so no many, you said so many that I, I can't, I'm, do you see me no writing? Problem. I'm writing as, just as fast as I can and I can't keep up. I'll type them all up and put them all together for you. Oh my <laughs> gosh. You just, it was just so beautiful. And I can't wait to see the series that Carnegie series because that sounds oh yeah no i can't believe that's right around the corner it's not even a month from now i know well this has been just wonderful how can they reach you say it again what is uh, some of your handles and <laughs> so actually my handle just changed so it's just my name is my handle on twitter walter d grayson so you can find me it's really easy um also the name of my website walterdgrayson.com and so find me very quickly can search me on the McAllister website. Um, trying to also the T. Thomas Ford Center in New Jersey. Please stop by. Um, yeah, I mean, I try try to try to do things wherever people find find I can be useful. So, hope Barbara, I can get out to visit you in Oakland. And uh, I'm going to be getting down to Texas as soon as I can. You can stay here. I I make it like it's a little bed and breakfast. Oh, sounds perfect. I want you to come. I can't. I could just talk all night with you. This is just. Oh, what a! This has been a dream of mine is to have you on my show. You know. <laughs> oh, Barbara, this is you're too generous, but no, I'll, I will take it, and we will keep doing great things together. Oh, thank you so much. Well, you stay safe, and I will keep in touch definitely, and yes. uh, look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much for this time. This is Barbara Bray. Thank you for listening to the Rethinking Learning Podcast and my conversation with Dr. Walter Grayson. Make sure you check out the blog post on barbarabray.net that goes with this podcast. 
because it includes notes about his story along with pictures, videos, and links to some of the amazing resources Walter mentioned. Please subscribe to my podcast. You know, it would be so awesome if you wrote a review. You can also subscribe to my website at barbabray.net to receive updates, more inspirational podcasts, and a link to resources about my book, Define Your Why, and so much more. Thanks again for listening. Keep sharing your story. And please stay safe and be well.